The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, stop straightening your bananas and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 479 with guests Ben Hall and Jeff McWhorter, recorded live Monday, August 24, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Redgate Software. Essential tools for SQL Server, .NET, and Exchange. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who can check out any time he likes, and frequently does, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard again. Yes, we are. We just won't go away. <laughs> oh, my God, is it hot out here. Must be summertime. Well, you know, it's been a mild summer, but, man, lately, whew, the air conditioner at the studio and at my apartment decided to quit on the same day. Nice. It just went, ah! Always the hottest day. Too hot. Uh, that's enough chit-chat. Let's get into the show here. Better Know Framework, coming at you. Awesome. So, uh, Better Know Framework, of course, where I shine a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET framework, and hopefully you'll learn a few things, or at least know where to go to learn a few things. Today I'm talking about system.io.unmanaged memory stream. Oh. Yeah, so this is access to an unmanaged block of memory from managed code. So typically what you want to do, like if you have a resource file, mm -hmm. you can load that up and map it into memory and right. then use the unmanaged stream memory stream to go ahead and pull that data out without having, to, you know, if you've got a big file or something, without having to allocate and then deallocate uh, or, you know, garbage collect. So it avoids garbage collection, which is a nice little way to keep your profile up. But especially if you're dealing with a really big file. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, that's uh, that's how you can do it. You avoid copying data into the garbage collected heap, and you reduce allocations and improve your application's working set. Nice. So if you've got any big files you want to load up, check out the unmanaged memory stream. 
That's all I got, Richard. You got an email? I do indeed, and it's about 472. That's the show we did with Steve Evans on IT for Developers. Oh, yeah, great show. And he says, hi, guys. You made me laugh, cry, and worry while listening (laughs) to show 472. I'm currently the web developer manager slash senior developer for a new media agency here in the UK. I was hired into this role, but my others are even worse than developer slash network support. And it extends more and more because I was standing closest to the server when the last guy left. Isn't that funny? Funny how that works, yes. Mm. So even though I started out as a graphic designer, now I've also been a developer, IT support, network support, infrastructure manager, DBA, graphic designer, and more. Yep. That's how it happens. Yeah. On another note, you talked about password security. For the development servers, there are strong passwords for both RDP and for the databases. They all use strong passwords, not passphrases. Hmm. Do you consider this bad practice? All the staging and live servers have strong passwords, normally tear characters or more. We also use the same admin password for most things from web servers, SQL servers, and mail servers as it saves the dev team, the slash DBA team from having to remember multiple passwords. I'm worried that this is wrong, too. Hmm. Keep up the great shows. You always make me reevaluate my processes, which in the end keeps me and my team up to date. I intend to convert everyone to .NET rocks. And cheers from James Studdart. Passwords versus passphrases. Your verdict, sir? Uh, I'm a passphrase guy, but that's mostly because I think in phrases anyway, and they're easier to remember. You know, they, they, they grab on. The problem with like 10, 15 character passwords is you invariably have to write them down. Yeah. Um, the, but the other big whammy here with that, that James mentioned is this idea that all these machines have the same password. So given one crack. Right. Or, you know, a guy needs access to a web server and suddenly finds out, hey, I can log into all the databases, too, with this password. Right, so right, right. Definitely, there are issues there. Uh, I'm not the manic password rotator guy. Like, you know, there are folks out there that every 30 days you need to enter a new password, and it can't be the same as the last 15 passwords you mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a little too evil. So. so you like the idea of finding multiple cryptic passphrases and using those just because you can and, remember them? yeah. But the phrases, you know, the, the thing about the thing that's great about phrases is they're hard to hack, but they're easy for humans to remember. Yeah. So they don't have to be that cryptic. Oh, okay. It doesn't, yeah, you know, but the they could be a line about, from a song or something. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, some phrase that matters to you, right? There once was a moose named George is a bear to hack. James, thanks so much for your email. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas from shows, criticisms, you name it, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. And with that, let's just introduce our guests. It's uh, probably going to be a, a a good show. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, so we'll we'll get right into it. Uh, our guests are Ben Hall and Jeff McWhorter. Ben is a UK-based C-sharp developer tester with a strong passion for software development and loves writing code. Ben enjoys exploring different ways of testing software, including both manual and automated testing, focusing on the best ways to test different types of applications. He also loves developing web apps using ASP.NET and Ruby on Rails. He's a C-Sharp MVP and maintains a blog at blog.benhall.me.uk. Jeff McWhorter is the Director of Simplicity at Web Ascender, a web consulting firm based in Okemos, Michigan, O-K-E-M-O-S. His lifelong interest in programming began with a home computing magazine in 1983, which included an article about writing a game called Boa Alley in BASIC. 
Jeff currently lives in a farming community near Lansing, Michigan. When he's not in front of a computer, he enjoys rock and ice climbing and road trips with his wife and two dogs. Jeff is the program director and founding member of the Greater Lansing Users for .NET, G-L-U-G, Glug. That's kind of a Swedish drink, isn't it? Christmas drink, Glug. He's also an ASP.NET MVP and ASP Insider. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. It's all about testing the web. So uh, who wrote the book? Is it Ben's book or is it uh, Jeff's book or you both, did you both write it? Yeah, it's a 50-50 split that we both had, both put in different parts of the book and wrote different sections of it. And what's the name of the book? It is called Testing ASP.NET Web Applications, and it's published by Rocks. Awesome. Well, uh, where do we start? Um, there's so many There's so many different kinds of testing when you're talking about, well, any software. Um, what, how, do, how, does it, how does it break down? Well, why don't we start like this? Um, what do you think about when you think about web testing, Carl? Well, I think about testing. I think about unit testing, which has to happen no matter what kind of application you're writing. I think about functional testing. I think about usability testing. Of course, I think about performance testing. I think about UI testing. Well, that's perfect because we got chapters about all that different things, all those things inside the book. Um, and our first chapter that we start with is uh, unit testing. Um, so I'll turn that one over to Ben. Um, Ben's the, the guy who wrote that chapter, and uh, let's let's hear from Ben about unit testing. Okay. Is that where you start, unit testing? Uh, well, there are many different ways you can start testing an application. Uh, some people like to go from kind of the exceptions testing and write kind of requirements gathering and actually defining quite high-level exceptions tests beforehand so they um more so they know the end goal of what they're aiming for. Mm-hmm. Some people like to do this afterwards. They like to kind of dive right in with the unit test, start writing code, and afterwards write higher-level tests. So there's two different ways you can approach the problem. Sure. So when we're talking about unit-level tests, is this really the web side of things, or is this more about exercising the classes that the web pages call? Uh, so one of the advantages of using a framework and using the MVC pattern is that you can actually get quite um, into the core of the application and unit test the actual core functionality. Um, this means that you can cut out some of the actually having to load up the web browser, having to load up some of the ASP.NET core runtime, and instead just focus on the actual core fundamentals of what your code is actually doing. Now, we know that ASP.NET MVC is really great for and uh, for unit testing. But what about just regular ASP.NET applications if you separate your concerns, uh, you know, the way you're supposed to? Mm. Uh, do we, is, there, is there an issue? What's the issue? Uh, if you separate your concerns, kind of if you follow a pattern similar to the model view presenter, the MVP mm-hmm. pattern, mm-hmm. then you can definitely have good coverage around your, um, around your classic kind of ASP.NET web forms application in a similar way you would with um, MVP. The advantage which MVP brings is MVC, you get much you mean. more control. MVC, I think you mean, right? So there's two different types of patterns. There's the MVP pattern. Basically, you have your controller, and you inject a view object into the controller, and then the controller can interact directly with the view using an interface to separate the, the to program against the abstract. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, with MVP, uh, um, with MVC, the um, framework did more of this kind of legwork for you. So the controller and the view are more separated. Right. So it comes down to uh, MVC sort of forces you to separate your concerns, whereas if you're if you're doing straight ASP.NET uh, development with you know where all where all your goo is in a class somewhere uh, outside of the UI, then it's up to you to to do the separation and follow the rules. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's probably one of the main problems with ASP.NET, how, um, how it was, is that it didn't really encourage you to separate your concerns. Right. It's quite happy to sit there and allow you to put huge amounts of logic in your button, button and click event. Yeah. Um, and as such, then writing any sort of unit tests around that became increasingly difficult. Right. With the MVC framework, they're kind of, they're not forcing you, but they're definitely encouraging you you to separate your concerns straight out of the box, um, to kind of encouraging best practices, and so you can actually unit test your code more effectively. So tools for unit testing that you like to use? Uh, so um, in terms of frameworks, uh, I definitely like to use the XUnit framework, which is up on Coplex. Um, I find it's got a nice syntax. It's really quick. It's really lightweight. And unit Classic framework, does everything you need, excellent, does an excellent job at it. RhinoMox I use for stubborn and uh, mocking, and then um, ReSharper and TestDriven.net for helping you to write your code and actually run your unit tests. Okay, is there more to the story about uh, unit testing ASP.NET applications, or if you're already using these tools to, um, let's say, you know, test non-ASP.NET apps, is there anything in particular? Well, with the ASP.NET apps, one of the things in the book that we stress a lot about is um, you don't have to be using MVC to to write good tests and um, be able to test your web applications. Um, going back to the classic web forms, um, separation of concerns, we covered that a little bit, but um, just abstracting your logic and getting it out of a button-click event is just really important. And being a consultant, I see so many people's code just different code bases constantly, and people are still writing code inside of button-click events. And um, if, if you guys take anything away from this show, take away that don't don't write your logic in the button-click event, abstract it out, and uh, separation of concerns is uh, very important and will make your web forms testable, and you can do things like test-driven development with web forms. Um, it's a little bit more difficult than using a MVC framework, but you still can use patterns like that for testing. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whom this show would not exist. No doubt, you bump into testing tasks now and then in your work. And we can bet writing functional tests is not your favorite thing. It's difficult. It takes ages and the results could be dubious. Well, get ready to start liking it thanks to Telerik. With the just-launched Web AII testing framework, building web automation tests is a breeze. Enjoy code-based automation of advanced ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight apps. Write a single test and have it executed against multiple browsers at once. Benefit from rich API link support, integration with Visual Studio unit testing, NUnit, XUnit, and MBUnit, not to mention the free wrappers for Telerik RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight as shipped with Telerik's new testing tool. Surely one of its best features... Web AII Testing Framework, which is developed by Art of Test, is absolutely free. 
If you're already hooked on Web AII testing framework, you can start using it right away. Go to Telerik.com for more info. And hey, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I'm remembering back to the days when I used to teach ASP.NET classes. And uh, I think by the, by, the, by the second half of day one, we were already out of the button click in writing classes, writing uh, you know, at least at least one other class project, and then we would separate tiers from that. But right, and an- another thing about unit testing uh, that a lot of developers don't realize that they do, um, they do it constantly. If you're opening up a web form or a Windows form application, um, like all of us have done, you you open up a Windows form, you throw a button, click event on there, you put some test logic in there, and make sure something works. That you know, in, in a way, is a unit test. So moving into moving that into a framework like NUnit or, or something like that, um, making it reusable and being able to automate that, you know, you might as well keep that stuff around. It's definitely important. All right. So from unit testing, we go to. Um, I think we go move into the automated user interface testing, um, more like fun- functional testing. Um, okay. There's a couple couple camps on how to do that, and uh, um, I'll talk about that that camp first. The, the part that I wrote about. And that's using a framework to drive the web browser. So using a framework, um, we talk about Selenium, and we also talk about Watten. Um, Watten is a framework derived from the Water framework, um, which was over on the, the Ruby side. And what it does is um, it integrates with a testing framework like NUnit, and you can call the, the Watten framework and drive a web browser. You new up a browser object, like a IE object, you throw some, call some methods on it to navigate to a web page, and then you uh, use your uh, testing framework to assert that certain things happened on the website, and then you're able to drive the web browser and start making sure things show up on the screen. Um, Selenium is another framework that you can uh, do that sort of testing with. Um, Selenium uh, supports uh, driving the brow- browsers in Safari, um, Internet Explorer, Firefox, multiple browser support, and uh, there's a whole stack of applications in there. Um, the core of Selenium is written in Java. Um, it turns away some .NET developers because they like to have everything written on the on the .NET framework for some reason. But it's just another one of those very powerful tools. Um, one of the nice things about Selenium is the Selenium Recorder, which is a plugin for Firefox, and it'll record a browser session. So um, it makes writing those tests uh, a lot easier. It's just having to, you know, you just re- record your browser session, and it generates some code for you, and uh, you can run copy that over into your unit test and reproduce it. Have you guys seen Telerik's testing tools like the Web UI Test Studio or Testing Framework? I have not. I've come across them. Um, I haven't used them. Um, but I have come across their tools. I guess they're really good for Ajax and Silverlight, things like that. We, you do have the recording capabilities and simulating user ac- interactions and things. Right, and uh, Silverlight is an interesting one. Um, Testing Silverlight and testing um, RIA apps, it's pretty difficult testing not only for functional testing, testing for accessibility, and uh, that that's a problem that we're facing in the community right now is uh, developing those tools, and um, it's great to see that Telerik is focusing on that and being able to provide testing capabilities for that. Uh, Shrinkster is that link if you want to check it out, uh, listeners. It's shrinkster.com slash 18xd. 18XD. So um, these other tools that you mentioned, are these free tools and or not? And where can we get those? 
Yeah, one of the great things about Ben and I, um, we both come from the open source world. So a lot of the tools, most of the tools we cover in the book are open source tools or free tools to download. Um, you know, maybe we can uh, include those links in the show notes and make sure that the listeners have that. Um, but both Absolutely. Selenium and uh, Watton are free frameworks for, for downloading. So that's cool. So, so it's good to know that you you know if you buy the book, it's not requiring you to purchase anything. Do you um is there is there testing that you can do by yourself without you know can you can you write automated testing tools yourself? Is it you know I guess that I guess that's the question. Uh, you definitely can. Um, the most frameworks, however, um, they've got huge amounts of effort and they help you in such a kind of fantastic fashion that writing your own is complex um, and takes a lot of time when the frameworks out there are quite mature now, um, especially on the .NET platform. They've got lots of support, lots of community around them. And as such, it's quite easy just to kind of jump in and get going with the existing tools already out there. And Watton is just a, it's literally just a wrapper over top of browser uh, um, object models. So it's its pretty painless. You, you mean, I've done this myself by hand against IE, and it's lots of fuss depending on the version of the uh, of the browser you're using. And writing your own framework, this is, um, living in uh, um, Michigan with the auto industry and the big three, um, this is something that, that's very common for me, and talking with Ben, it's not common for him, um, but there's a lot of uh, companies that don't allow open source or just even open source tool like NUnit to be introduced into the company. Um, so uh, MS test um, and inside of uh, Microsoft's uh, Visual Studio Team Test Edition, there's the, the web testing tools inside of there that provide uh, functional testing for web, um, driving the browser, stuff like that. If your organization does not allow for open source Solutions. There are solutions inside of Microsoft uh, Visual Studio to to perform these tasks. Huh. But and the and the point here is you're actually writing code to drive the form. So you're you're actually automating the process of filling in a form and hitting submit that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah so um, it's, pretty much what you're doing a, is automating the users, kind of how the user interacts with your website. Right. So you have full control over the browser. So you can do things like re- refresh the page. You can fill in the text boxes, hit the submit button, go backwards, go forwards. Just basically, however the user would interact with your web page, you can now automate and write automated tests around those to verify the web page actually works as you expect. There are some problems around these sort of tests, though, um, such as what happens if your user interface changes, names of things changes. Um, in the book, we offer some patterns on, on the, uh, how to help you um, avoid those things. But um, they're considered fragile tests. If you change anything, um, your tests could break, and you're going to have to go back and maintain the test. Um, one of the things about testing is testing, it, it is an investment, and you have to put money into that. And hopefully your management sees value in that, um, but there definitely is an investment to, to keep the test running correctly. If I could jump back to unit testing for a second, do you guys recommend to developers that, with, uh, that they do test-first development, and is that uh, recommended only when using MVC, or can you do test-first, test-driven development um, without without MVC framework? Yeah, um, you can definitely do test-driven without the MVC framework, um, and it's definitely something I'd recommend to all developers, no matter what kind of code they're writing, whether it be ASP.NET or WinForms or even WPS. I think test-driven.NET just allows you to, it kind of changes your mindset about how you write code. Instead of 
just kind of bashing out code, kind of going straight into the implementation. TDD, writing the test up front, you actually stop, you think about the code, you think about what you're trying to achieve, and then you have your test to guide you and actually help you and implement the actual code. And then once you're done, you have the test to make sure that it's passing and working as you actually expect. And is it easier, obviously, using MVC? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, MVC definitely gives you um, a lot more control mm. um, over what you can test. Um, what you can actually test is a lot more easier to access. The object model is a lot simpler. It's also abstracted away from some of the core ASP.NET, kind of the infrastructure should, such as the HTTP request. That's now been more abstracted away, making your test more isolated and actually more testable in a unit testing fashion. It is possible with WinForms and kind of the old style of doing it, but you just have to think a bit more. You have to kind of think about how you structure your application in a bit more of a, kind of, you just have to put a little bit more effort into your actual architecture than you do with MVC. Uh, a good friend of mine, um, we were in a conversation once and we were talking about test-driven development and different types of testing methods. And uh he uh, told me the type of testing that I do is test eventually development. And test-driven <laughs> development, writing your tests first, um, I've definitely done it in the past. Um, I'm working very hard to do that all the time. Um, but honestly, test-driven development is hard. And it's very hard for somebody to pick up a book and learn how to do test-driven development and do it correctly. Um, pairing with someone, um, doing pair programming, um, working with a mentor really helps helps you learn how to do that. Um, where I'm at in my career is, I, as I said, I try to do it as much as I can um, with the WinForms and MVC. Especially in MVC, I try to do it more. With WinForms, I try to try to do it. Um, but I, I do practice test eventually development. I think there's a support group out for people like us. I just can't <laughs> see how you would build a web GUI in that sort of test-first model. You really need to have the the form laid down before you can construct a test for it. Um, it, it definitely is, is very difficult, um, um, constantly compiling and getting the errors and it not being in there. Um, but as you, you, you just keep, um, abstracting things out and thinking about things, I would like to do it. And, and, you know, this brings up a good point. Um, test-driven development is a horrible name for the process of what you're doing. Um, it should be, um, create a good design development first. Um, test-driven development is more about design and how it works um, rather than the actual testing. The unit tests that you get off of it, um, they're definitely a, a good side effect of it. Um, it is difficult to learn, but um, it's about design and learning how to get those objects up, get them, get them built, and then wire up that form and get them to save and, and do the things that you. Well, need and you just form. you just hit on something that that uh, that made me think where we might be giving the wrong impression. Yeah, wire up that form. So I mean, so much of web development is driven by the design of the page, isn't it? I mean, don't you? Tip in a typical situation, you'd go to an artist, a Photoshop person who'd do a mock-up, and you know you'd sort of want to have not necessarily all the UI with the buttons and the silver light or, or everything, but at least some sort of idea as to what the UI is, so those forms will be written, and then you're using your test-driven development tools to to build the 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 logic layer. Isn't that true? In an ideal world, we have, in the ideal web world, we have a, a designer mocking up a form and giving it to us, and then we're able to take those elements and abstract them out into the, into the things that we need. Um, 
But most developers don't live in that ideal deal world, and they're stuck mocking up those things themselves and doing it. And a lot of times, uh, the the processes get fudged together. They don't do a mock-up. The mock-up is just the ASPX page, and it gets done like that. And it, it's very difficult to work in those environments, in my opinion. So you're saying it's it's difficult to work in an environment where where you don't have some sort of design up front? Correct. Um, design meaning not a software design, but more of a graphic the, design. The UI design, the mock-up. Yeah, yeah mock-up. I mean, is it? There's just no end to the amount of Photoshop people that can design what a web page should look like. Is it that difficult to, you know, is it that difficult to get someone like that involved in the process? Um, in, in some environments, it, it absolutely is. Um, I've seen lots of people who want to do all the work internally, um, and I'm not a big fan of that. I, I say everybody is good at something, and if you're not good at doing the mockups, you know, try to find somebody who is, whether it's external, whether it's, you know, some, maybe a, a secretary or somebody else at the company, they might not be a developer, they may have a good good eye for design, good eye for color, they definitely can help with that, those sort of tasks. Yeah, and I've worked with kind of professional full-time usability people, and the difference they can actually bring to a project is quite immense. They see things in a completely different way, and how they structure their layout is it's just quite it's difficult to believe how much impact they can make on a project compared to just trying to do it yourself through kind of in creative fashion. And it, it occurs to me that they're not, um, the mindsets are conflicting to a developer's mindset. You literally can't do both. You, you think one way or you think the other. I, I found when I've had designers hand me stuff, I'm looking at them like, do you know how hard this is going to be to code? And then you sort of get that reality check of, but it's going to be really easy for the guy to use. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the Ants Memory Profiler from Redgate Software. I'd like you to think for a minute about the project you're working on right now. Is your app showing signs of high memory usage? Do you need to regularly restart it because the performance seems to degrade over time? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then it's worth looking into a memory profiler like Ants Memory Profiler from Redgate Software. Ant's Memory Profiler analyzes the memory usage of your app and provides detailed data, letting you easily locate memory leaks fast. It only takes a few minutes to run, and it's so much easier to optimize your app when you know exactly where your memory is going. Ant's Memory Profiler runs against both ASP.NET and Windows applications, and at $4.95, you can't afford not to run it. To get your hands on your 14-day free trial, just go to shrinkster.com slash 19E0. That's 19ECHO0. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. So I think this leads us into a, a good segue to, to talk a little bit about accessibility testing and usability testing. Um, everybody, different dev environments work different ways. Different dev shops have, have their ways of doing things. I've worked in places where I've been the sole designer, um, not a very good designer, but nonetheless a designer. I worked in a place where I was told to wrap everything around a div tag and the designers will come in and they'll, they'll clean it up, um, just as you write, you know, write a little bit accessible code. And to give you an idea of the current place that I work right now, um, the very first day uh, I was here, um, two employees were having an argument about shades of gray. So it was a little bit different, uh, place, um, meaning that they're designers. Um, it's a little bit different than any other place that I've worked and it's been great to, to learn about that sort of thing. And I've definitely taken um, 
taken a, a, a real interest in learning about web accessibility and looking at websites out there. Um, there's a lot of websites out there that um, are not accessible to users. So, Jeff, after all this design work, uh, wh- you know, what is the phase of testing now? You've got the design that works. Is it, you know, do you, you go for acceptability? What does that really mean? Um, accessibility is, are all users able to use your website? So an accessible website would be somebody with a disability. Um, maybe the disability is a mobility disability. Um, they're not able to use a keyboard. Or possibly um, the one that, that's most common that we always hear about is uh, vision disabilities. Um, someone is either blind or legally blind or um, can't really see the, the, the web page very well. Um, there's certain things that we can, certain ways to design our websites to make it much easier for for these users to use the website. And that's the next type of testing that um, I definitely encourage users to to start looking into. Um, it, it's really hard. The tools out there, um, it's there aren't any real tools out there that you can click a button and say, my site is accessible to everyone. Uh, the problem with accessibility is most developers see these compliance laws, Section 508, um, WCAG. They see these things and they treat them as checklists. I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do that. When they should be thinking about the user instead, um, they should be putting resources into um, learning how does a, a blind person use a website? How does somebody who's legally blind use a website? Um, they they use a um, tool called JAWS, um, which is a screen reader or other screen readers on the market. And even just between someone who's legally blind and somebody who is fully blind, they use these screen readers different. And actually, Windows has built into it uh, accessibility software that will read the screen to you and read browsers, you know, re- read web pages to you. Right, definitely. Um, using these tools, everybody uses them differently. And learning how these people use these tools are is very important. Um, someone who is blind will... will crank up the speed on these screen readers and they'll go lightning fast, whereas somebody who is legally blind, in my experience, um, they'll have it more on a, a, a normal pace, but uh, they'll, they'll bump up the font size and uh, the resolution very high to, to look at that, and uh, it definitely changes how users view your website. All right. It is a very specialized area here, and I don't know, I don't ever think much about websites being accessible like that. Yeah, I don't here. either. Yeah, but obviously people have to deal with this. I, I really think that's a show unto itself, don't you? How about this? How about Silverlight content? I mean, isn't Silverlight content, uh, you know, especially text drawn with graphics instead of text? I mean, it, there isn't. If you're if you're if you have a little Silverlight tool, and unless you're in a text box or something, you just draw some text on a button or on a screen or something. That's not something you can copy. Or, you know, it's not text, it's graphics. Isn't that true? Right, that, that is true. And Silverlight definitely poses lots of issues for accessibility. Um, uh, Silverlight uh, 2 has added some stuff for accessibility to help make it more accessible. Um, uh, Flash and all those other RA apps um, also. But we, we run into accessibility issues like that. Um, and you guys, you guys mentioned that you don't know how it really fits into into your applications as it is right now. Um, there's actually been some very large lawsuits about um, discrimination about websites that um, were not accessible for people with disabilities, wow. and they'd had to go back and change it. Um, 
Target was one of those a couple years ago that they had to go back and make some modifications to the website. And and the things that we're talking about um, to be a, um, accessible aren't really hard things. Um, we, as web developers, you've probably heard that um, you don't want to use tables for uh, layout. Um, so tables are used for tabular data. And that's very confusing um, still to this day. A lot of people still want to use tables for layout. Um, a good way to think about this is if the data belongs in an Excel spreadsheet, then it's correct to use a table for tabular data. Um, if you're using it for layout, um, it's definitely you're going to want to find a different method like CSS. Um, now, why is that? Obviously, that. I mean, that's your opinion. There, that's not a hard, fast rule of law. I mean, you can put layout in tables and it works just fine. Well, screen readers definitely have a problem reading it, though. It's the way that it reads on a screen is is very difficult. It would it would read um, the top first and then bump down a little bit and read, and it makes the experience for somebody using a screen reader very difficult to use. Isn't that a function of the screen reader, though, with the the direction in which it reads? Um, it is a function of the screen reader, and it could be blamed on the way that screen readers work. Um, but these are the tools that we have to work with, and we always have to work around them, and we've had to work around these issues for years. Well, it's one of the best cases I've heard for why you wouldn't use tables for layout is that, and you know, you use CSS for layout because there are tools out there that expect tables to be tabular data. All right, let's uh, let's keep moving along. Uh, one of my personal favorites, because certainly something I've done a ton of, is performance testing or load testing. Uh, is this a, a different kettle of fish uh, from what we've talked about so far? What do you guys do for uh, performance testing? Um, again, yeah, this is definitely a different, a whole different testing discipline that requires a whole different uh, set of skill sets to, to learn about this. Um, lots of different tools on the market out there that are very expensive. Um, Load Runner, which I believe HP owns now. Um, I always like to say a lot of these tools you have to sell your kidney to be able to afford to buy. Um, some of the, the options that we, we like to use is the Inside of Visual Studio Team Test Edition, there is some performance testing tools in there. Um, you can, if you decided to develop your web application and develop a, a suite of tests, um, the functional tests, those web tests, um, you can use all those web tests and do a performance test um, and a load test on your site. And also another one that's out there that's just a great tool that's been around for years is the WCAT uh, program, the Web Capacity and Analyst Tool. Uh, which is included in uh, the IIS resource kit, um, which is a way to script it. Um, and you can do some neat things like uh, play, replay uh, IIS log files um, to to get some data on the on the site um, about performance testing. I'd like to add to that. Um, there's also a tool from Redgate called Ants Profiler. Right. It's only like 400 bucks, right? Yeah, it's something like 400 dollars, and that's can test um, performance test your ASP.NET web applications. And it's actually the the new version 4 has got some really cool UI features. That actually makes identifying performance spots within your application very, very easy. It's got a nice graph at the top, and it's got some... And you can see the peaks in kind of the CPU usage. So you can just quickly identify where you need to actually dig in deeper and identify those problems. Right, and... There, of course, there's a difference here between uh, you know, sort of profiling of the site, because if you're actually trying to load test to find out how fast the site can go, sticking a profiler on the, uh, on a machine really messes with its ability to perform, because profiling is hard work itself, right? 
Well, at least you can find where the bottlenecks are and then focus on testing those and amping those up. Exactly. It's better, or in my experience, it's always better to try and identify the bottlenecks first right. and try and eliminate as many of those as possible and then afterwards consider performance and how much it can actually, where the actual limit of the application is. If you've got huge bottlenecks already in the application and you're trying to performance test, then all you can do is hit those existing bottlenecks which you know about. So if you can use a tool like Ant Profiler to eliminate those bottlenecks just on your local dev machine, then when you actually get to your performance testing stage, then you actually the results are a lot more useful because they're more realistic about how your application might work. Here's a question, and Richard, you might have some insight into this because of your work with uh, Strange Loop. Um, you test your websites internally on your internal network, right? Does that give you a more accurate um, picture of how it's going to perform on the internet because you uh, sort of uh, raise the the roof on the network bandwidth limit and you sort of take that off the table? Uh, it kind of does. Um, personally, when I do it, I, um, I always perform some tests internally just more like sanity checks to make sure that the application works. And then if it's going to be a public-facing website, then you always try and upload it to a, a staging server, yeah. um, ideally in the same colo location, and then actually use that to test how it will work for people actually on the Internet. Because you do get some auditors, and the Internet is a very different beast to just running all your tests on a local server. The biggest problem I have with internal testing is that it hides latency issues. So, you know, often as devs, we really want to drill into our code and making our code faster. And then when you actually get out in the wild, you find out that the server processing time of your page represents 5% of the total page load time because you're pulling, the guy's pulling down 60, 70 resource files with a 200 millisecond latency. Right. So that overwhelms everything else. So you really have to do both. You want to, you want to, take the the bandwidth thing off the table first, right, to, to test your code and how fast your code is working, then you really got to test it out in the wild. Now, are there companies out there that set up, uh, you know, farms of machines on the Internet that you can automate to hit your, uh, to hit your website, to, to load test it, like under real conditions from multiple places around the world, you know, some multiple routes to the same site, that kind of thing? Well, there's definitely some stuff coming out uh, with uh, cloud computing out there. Um, BrowserMob is one of the sites out there. Um, and because setting up a test environment can be very expensive um, depending on the amount of load that you need to generate. So using a, a service um, based out in the cloud, which is based off of the Amazon EC3 services, um, BrowserMob will be able to be much cheaper for you to generate your load and maybe just do your testing when you need it. Browser mob. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just looking at it now. But guys like LoadRunner, this is one of the services they offer, right? For right. Yep. Priced accordingly, of course. But Of course. Is that HP? Yeah, Hewlett yeah. Packard owns yeah. uh, LoadRunner. And a- another thing about performance that we, we definitely miss talking about is the um, requirements. Um, it, it's very important to determine what you're testing for before you even start testing. Um if you're writing an internal app that is only going to support 200 users, it's going to be you, you, your load test is going to be much different than trying to generate something, generate loads such as the the traffic that Dig or Slashdot would get. Um, 
so some things I like to ask is just how many, you know, always having the, the project stakeholders involved, asking them what they expect the traffic to be like. And most of the time they, they have no idea. Um, sometimes they do. Um, and when they do know is that that's when it's great to be able to say they want to be able to support 2 million requests at this time. Can we do this? And um, when you get that answer, yes, the application can do that. It's always great to say, okay, well, where does it fail? Um, so that's when the, the actual load test comes in, finding out where it does fail. That's important, too, to know that. Hey, getting back to load testing, I found a, a company out here, LoadStorm, LoadStorm.com, which generates tens of thousands of concurrent virtual users to simulate real users on your website or web application. And it's if you sign up for some... A Breeze account. I don't know what that is. You can run unlimited load tests with 50 concurrent UV users all month, every month at no charge. I'm not sure, but I think there's another level where you can get something like 0.1 cent per virtual user hour or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what it is because I just landed on the page, but but there you go, loadstorm.com. Have you guys heard of that one? I have not heard of that one. Uh, I've not come across that. There's definitely um, lots of companies which are taking advantage. So you just need to have a look around, um, experiment with the different services, see one which kind of suits you and suits the kind of traffic which you're planning to generate. Um, there's lots of companies now that are taking advantage of the EC2 and all the virtualization cloud. So there's definitely stuff there for you to investigate. I found this on a list of tools at shrinkster.com slash 18xf. It's uh, softwareqatest.com, and it's a website test tools and site management tools list, and it's huge. I want to check that out. At some point, these third-party load testing tools, you know, what is the difference between these and a denial-of-service attack? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Can you imagine signing up to, to, to hit somebody's website when they least expect it? That's right. Point it to somebody else's <laughs> website. Don't do this, people. <laughs> it's not a nice thing We're to do. We're evil only in thought, not in deed. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. So we're getting down towards the end of the show here. Uh, have we missed anything? What about um, security? Yeah, absolutely. Talking about the denial of service attacks there. Um, security testing is one of those things that um, I found in my experience a lot of developers um, really don't know a lot about and just really don't test for it just because uh, mainly because it's hard. Um, we, we do have a chapter in the book about security testing. Um, the problem with security testing is there's there's hundreds of books out there. There's just so many books about it. It's such a, a wide topic. Um, you could do show after show after show about the different types of security testing out there. Uh, so what we did was we took the approach. Um, there's a project out there, the OWASP project, the Open Web Application Security Project. And they publish every few years a top 10 uh, vulnerability uh, report. And these are the top 10 vulnerabilities that web developers should be out there and talking about. Hey, did we miss integration testing? What's that all about? Uh, so integration testing is basically your unit tests, you want to be quite isolated. Um, you don't want them interacting with external parties and external resources. Your unit tests should be isolated they should be fast and they should pass every single time. You want to make sure that they're covering your logic and that you see the green bar to make sure that all your business logic um, is working perfectly every single time. 
if you see your unit test fail, then you know there's something wrong urgently. With integration tests, these cover your um, the code which interacts with your external parties, such as a database or maybe a web service, um, an email server. Now, these have issues. Interacting with these type of services have lots of issues around them because they need extra configuration, they take a lot longer to run, they might need um, some additional files or some additional support kind of in order to make the test actually pass. And also, they might just be down. For example, if you're accessing a database across a network and the network goes down, then all your tests are going to start to fail. And this is where integration testing comes in. We like to, generally, it's best to separate the two, separate your unit tests and separate your integration tests, just to keep the boundaries kind of more clean and so you can run them independently. Okay. And uh, getting back to your book, um, can we find the book on Amazon? And give the name of it one more time. You can find the book on Amazon. It's available to pre-order now. And it's called Testing ASP.NET Web Applications. Excellent. Ben, Jeff, thank you very much. It's been uh, enlightening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Keep doing what you do. And you out there, keep listening to .NET Rocks. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a